0: I want you to turn to Matthew Chapter Eight. And in Matthew Chapter Eight, you have a a scene on a boat in a lake. Jesus got into the boat, verse 23, his disciples followed him. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. Jesus himself was asleep. They came to him and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And just, just remember that these are men who had spent their lives and their livelihood on this lake in this kind of boat. Uh, For them to believe that they were dying is a significant circumstance. And he said to them, why are you afraid? (laughs) Well, did we not just read that the lake was coming over the boat? (laughs) And he says, you men of little faith. Then he got up and he rebuked the disciples. No, he didn't rebuke the disciples. Then he got up And he rebuked the winds and the sea and it became perfectly calm. If you've ever been on the water, if you've ever been on white capping lake or a storm tossed sea, you understand the power that's on display here. Jesus was asleep, wakes up, tells the water, to be quiet, And the waves stopped, and the wind stopped, and everything was perfectly calm. Now, think about that. If, if you were on a, on a storm-tossed ocean, and all of a sudden the wind stopped, would the water stop? No, the water has been stirred up. It takes a long time for that to settle down. In this case, everything went shoo, perfectly calm. And notice the next verse, the men were amazed and said, what kind of a man is this? Did even the winds and the waves obey him? That is such an appropriate question. These were men in the boat and they said, that man is not like these men. What kind of a man is that? And their question is such a perfect setup for us to think about Christmas A baby in a manger. What what kind of a baby is this? A man who calms the winds and the waves. What kind of a man is this? And the answer to that is he is the God-man. He is the theanthropic person. Theos, God, an anthropos, man. He is 100% God and 100% man in the person of Jesus Christ. Born at Bethlehem. Crucified on a cross. Alive today at the right hand of God. He is from Bethlehem on forever the God-man. Deity and humanity united in one person. That's what we're going to deal with today is what kind of a man is this? I want to give you some resources at your disposal for just thinking through the deity of Christ. Thinking through the deity of Christ. Uh, It would be inappropriate for us to think a lot about the deity of Christ and neglect the humanity of Christ right? Um, So even just focusing in on the deity of Christ is not a neglect of the real humanity of Christ. He really felt emotions. He really felt pain. He was not an apparition, but he came in a real physical human body, felt what we feel, experienced the things we experienced yet without sin. He was fully human. But we do want to focus today on the fullness of the deity of Christ. And I want to give you these resources so that you have passages that you can look at and think through um, and have at your disposal um, for helping people think rightly about Jesus. And, and maybe you've read your Bible some and thought, wait, 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 where's the verse where Jesus says, hey guys, I'm God, right? And maybe you've even heard the argument, the Bible never says anywhere that Jesus is God. Or maybe you've heard it said, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. I want to overturn all of that. The Bible everywhere says Jesus is God. Jesus claimed to be God, Uh, The Bible makes no mistakes about who this one is. So these verses, I hope, are a help for you uh, to that end. Um, I do want us to think about, um, I have listed at the top Matthew 17. That's just a reference to the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were taken up to the mountain, and Jesus was transfigured before them, kind of uncloaked so that his glory shone through. Uh, They caught a glimpse of the glorified Christ, uh, but i do want you to turn to john chapter 12 or i'm sorry john 13 this is in the upper room the night that jesus was betrayed uh, the passover meal the last supper and in john 13:23 we read this about the author john who's writing this there was reclining on jesus bosom one of his disciples whom jesus loved And John doesn't refer to himself by name, he just is amazed that Jesus loved him, calls himself regularly the disciple whom Jesus loved. And they're seated at this low table, uh, in all likelihood, uh, seated on the ground with a low table uh, above their legs and kind of leaning on each other. And John is right next to Jesus. Uh, This same John, probably some 60 years later on the island of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1 gives this testimony of another time he saw this same Jesus. Revelation 1.12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash, His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Same John. Same Jesus, but Jesus unveiled, uncloaked. We sing the Christmas hymn, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Right? In his enfleshment, incarnation, Jesus is veiled. His full, glorious identity as the second person of the Trinity is veiled in human flesh. And if we're to talk about Jesus, we dare not start at Bethlehem. We must begin where he begins, uh, long before, in eternity past. So the first evidence for the deity of Christ I want you to see in Scripture is just simply the pre-existence of Christ. The pre-existence of Christ. And turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. From the very beginning, you have God creating everything from nothing. And then God in relationship with other persons, within our English Bibles, capital letters, is talking about what to do in terms of creation of man. Let us make man in our image. There's only one image. There's only one Godhead speaking here, but a Godhead in multiple persons. And so while this doesn't explicitly say Jesus Christ, we understand from the rest of Scripture that it was, in fact, Jesus Christ who created all things. John chapter 1 says that very thing. So uh, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, Obviously, begins before Bethlehem. He goes all the way back to Genesis one, which takes us all the way back to eternity past. I don't know about you, I can sort of get my mind around eternity future. I mean, moments just keep happening, but eternity past is a whole other deal. My brain just doesn't work to think about moments that just kept happening backwards for you guys backwards this way on the timeline. But that's when Jesus starts. In other words, he never started. Uh, Look at Micah 5.2. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And by the way, that Ephrathah, we we read this a lot at Christmas time. Uh, That's just the name of the guy who started the town. It's kind of a weird word to say, Ephrathah. I don't know if any of you have named your children Ephrathah. But that's what that means. You can look up 1 Chronicles 4.4. Uh, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. Clearly, a prophecy about Jesus. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So, this was written 400 years before Christ was born at Bethlehem. And already, his existence is way in the past, <laughs> from eternity past. So, the pre existence of Christ is a significant attestation to his deity. Number one, because No one else can claim that. No angel can claim existence in eternity past. No human can claim existence in eternity past. Uh, When we were born, we started. When we were conceived, we started. Uh, When Jesus was born, he continued. He took on flesh. Uh, In fact, throughout the Gospels, and I give you some references there in John 6, um, Jesus says effectively, I'm not from around here. I came here, I arrived, I have come from the Father. All right. that's not what somebody uh, says. I was born in Lubbock, Texas. I arrived in Lubbock, Texas. No, I didn't pre-exist. Um, that's when I started in 1974. All right. but Jesus pre-exists. He arrived on the earth. He came here. Uh, John 8:58 on your sheet there. Before Abraham was what? I am. Bad grammar, really good theology. Right, before Abraham existed, I am. We'll pick up that I am phrase later. All right, let's look at some more direct uh, indications of the deity of Christ. First of all, Jesus accepted worship. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. Jesus accepted worship. And, And just as a starting point, who is to be worshiped? God. And who else? No one. Okay, God, the worship of God is exclusive. It's his prerogative, his right. Um... Anything else is idolatry and hell-deserving. Right? God is jealous for his own glory. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, the magi from the east arrived, and they said, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. First of all, earthly kings worshiping a baby, kind of strange. Uh, but, you know, these guys are from the east. They do weird things in the east. Uh, so maybe worshiping babies is okay. Maybe it's part of their you know, sort of pantheon and idolatry. Maybe they think this baby represents something else. But keep in mind, Matthew is recording this. Matthew loves God. To a believer in Jesus Christ, to a follower of God, and to one being born along by the Holy Spirit to write this gospel account of, of Jesus' birth and life, he records that these kings worshipped him with no caveat. No explanation. And we know that was wrong, but they were from the East, and so we understand. No. No. Uh, Jesus was worshipped. And, and I would grant for a moment that a baby wouldn't necessarily have the ability to refuse worship, right? The baby Jesus, um, if he didn't want to be worshipped, couldn't at this point say, Hey, stop worshipping me. I'm not God. Um, but remember, this is uh, recorded by Matthew And then down in verse 11, same chapter. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother. They fell to the ground and they worshipped him. Uh, What should Mary and Joseph do regarding this blasphemous activity? Stop. Remember John the Apostle, we just read about him. Uh, Jesus leaned against Jesus' chest in the upper room and then falling as a dead man before him in Revelation 1. John also falls down before angels in the book of Revelation. What do the angels say? Stop doing that. Get up. I may soon do loss with you. I'm a fellow slave with you. Right? Uh, We don't worship angelic creatures. We don't worship dead saints. We don't worship anybody but God. And these kings worship the baby Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. By the way, uh, in my Bible, that's on the same page, just so we're observing our context here. They worship Jesus. Then in Matthew 4, verse 10, Jesus said to Satan, Go, for it is written, You shall worship Yahweh your God and serve him only. Jesus there in Matthew 4, right after Matthew 2, is affirming only God receives worship. Matthew very carefully records that this one who says to Satan, Only God gets worshiped, was himself worshiped even from birth. Even as a baby, worthy of this worship that only God is due. Turn to Matthew 14, verse 33. Another lake and boat scene. They got into the boat, the wind stopped. Verse 33, those who were in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, you are certainly God's son. Interesting connections there, by the way. Um, God's son is one to be worshipped, right? Right? Um, that's going to help keep us in a few moments from thinking the Son of God is some sort of sub-deity title. No, it actually is a title for deity. And Jesus was worshipped by the disciples. By the way, uh, Jesus does not say, stop worshipping me, I'm only God's Son. <laughs> no, Matthew's very clear. They worshipped him saying, you are God's Son. And in Matthew 28, 17... After the resurrection, 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Similarly, back in verse 9, disciples saw him after the resurrection, they greeted him, and they worshipped him. Turn to Hebrews 1.6. Not only does Jesus accept Worship without telling people to stop. But the worship of the Son is divinely ordained by God the Father. Hebrews 1 6. When God brings the firstborn into the world, God says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Worship whom? The firstborn that he brings into the world. God commands the angels, worship that baby. This worship is not something that Jesus just received, but he was too gentle to refuse, and so it just sort of happened to him. No, this was all divinely orchestrated by God, recorded in Scripture by those who were jealous for God's glory and not idolaters, and accepted by Jesus and ordained by the Father. All right, a second category of worship is Jesus' own declarations to be God, or the Scripture's declarations that Jesus is God. And we'll start in the Old Testament, looking at Isaiah 43, where God affirms in verse 10, Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. Okay, how many gods are there? One. How many have there ever been? What about those other planets and those other alternate universes where there are all those other gods like Mormonism teaches? No, there's only one. There has only ever been one. And there is only one Savior. Interestingly, these are the very titles picked up in the New Testament to describe Jesus. He is God, and he is Savior. And he is the Savior, the only Savior. All right, Isaiah 7.14 We get to hear these ones on the lips of unbelievers and choirs at Christmas time. Just glorious. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name, what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's not a name that uh, indicates, I'm going to name this kid Emmanuel because we really want God to be with us. No, this kid's going to be named Emmanuel because he will be God with us. That's the point of that name. Turn to Isaiah 9.6. The child will be born to us, the son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be Khaled. And you have to say Khaled because it's the way Handel wrote it, Right? Wonderful, count, or sorry, wonderful counselor. That's one title. His name shall be called Mighty God. This child, this baby, his name shall be called Mighty God. He shall have another title, Eternal Father. Have you ever thought about that? We sing Handel's Messiah. We sing his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. Wait, he's not the Father. He's the Son. Did did, did Isaiah get it wrong or did Handel get it wrong? What's the problem here? Is, Is Jesus father? In Trinitarian relationships, the answer to that is no. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and they have their variations and roles. But in terms of the doctrine of the fatherhood of God over the created order, the entire Trinitarian God is Father. In fact, this helps us make sense of Isaiah 53 when uh, Jesus, the suffering servant of Yahweh, is said to have offspring and they will prosper. There is a fatherhood to the son, right? Um, In my household, am I son or father? I'm father, but aren't I also a son? Right? It just helps to understand which relationship is being described here. In this verse, this predication of this baby that he will be a wonderful counselor, mighty God and eternal father, are ascriptions of absolute, unique and sole deity. He is very God of very God. All right, turn to Matthew 123. We're out of time for Matthew one twenty three. Read it later. Uh, Let's go to uh, John 20.28. This is Thomas. Notice his first name is not doubting. He gets a bad rep sometimes. Thomas answered after putting his hands into the feet and side of Christ, he answered, My Lord, that is the one in charge of me, and my God. Jesus did not stop him. This is a right affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ. And this is a clear declaration of Scripture that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Thomas says, You are my Lord and you are my God. Now, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, when they come to your door... Uh, at least they have said this at my door, have said, oh, no, no, Thomas was just saying OMG. Like a, an expletive. No, he was not. <laughs> he was very clearly declaring what he knew by faith that Jesus is, in fact, God. All right, I did skip John one one. It's important to look at this one. Let's go back there. You know this. In the beginning was the word, uh, who's the word in this verse? According to verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is Jesus. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. The way John writes this is exquisite. It would be delightful to show you the Greek text here. And, and when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and they say, look, there's no definite article. There, there, John does not say Jesus is the God, and since there's no the there, you have to insert an a, Jesus is a God, and so they relegate Jesus to a subcategory of deity, as if there was more than one to begin with, but they take him away from the status of God and they call him a God, and there's so many problems with this, but Greek grammar does not support that by the way, if you just take every noun in John chapter 1 that does not have the definite article and insert an English letter A, by the way, Greek doesn't have an indefinite article, you just insert the little A in front of every other noun, you make nonsense of the rest of the chapter. Language falls apart. But in the New World Translation, the Jehovah's Witnesses have intentionally changed texts to scrub the deity of Christ. Um, now, they were unsuccessful. Uh, you can take a New World Translation and you can prove the deity of Christ from a New World Translation Still but they've changed John 1.1 to say that Jesus is a God. Well, then you have a problem. Go back to Isaiah 43. Well, how many are there? (laughs) We've got problems in in making a mess of our Bibles when we do such things. But there's a reason that John doesn't say Jesus is definite article God. Because without the definite article in Greek, the point is not to identify um, the, the totality of who God is, but to identify qualitative Godness. Qualitative Godness is what's on display in saying, and the Word was God. In other words, John is very careful. He doesn't say Jesus is the totality of the Trinity. He doesn't say Jesus is the Holy Spirit and Jesus is the Father like a, like a, um, uh, a, a modalist or someone that believes that God just shows up in different forms at different times, like a T.D. Jakes or something like that. Um, But he's very critical to say that Jesus is the fullness of deity qualitatively in his very being and essence. Without being the totality of the persons in the Godhead. It's so technically beautiful and accurate. I mean, we we struggle with ways to convey Trinity. How can there be one God and three persons? And John does it so beautifully with so few words right here. Uh, Really remarkable testament. Not only to the deity of Christ but to clear articulation of inter-Trinitarian relationships. All right, go to Romans 9, 5. Whose are the fathers from whom is the, here we'll pick it up in the middle of verse 5, the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. And the grammar in the original, again, is clear. Jesus here is being called God blessed forever. Uh, You can't say, well, the Bible never says Jesus is God. Here, Romans 9, 5 is very clear. The Bible is saying Jesus is God. All right, uh, another category here on page two is that Jesus himself claimed to be God. Not only does the Bible in numerous places, and there are other other verses I give you there, uh, but Jesus himself claimed to be God. Turn to Matthew chapter 22, verses 42 to 46. The Pharisees gathered together, and Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, well, he's the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, And this is Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. And in the Hebrew text in in Psalm 110, it is, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to David's Edonai, In other words, uh, the self-existent covenant-keeping God of Israel, Yahweh, says to David's Lord, and, and he says to him, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word and they stopped asking questions. Remarkable question Jesus put before the religious leadership who were bankrupt spiritually, had rejected God and were in the process of rejecting their own Messiah. And Jesus said, look, the only way that a great, 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 great grandson of David is David's Lord. By the way, when David wrote that, he was king. He was king of the world superpower. Nobody was his Lord. Except God himself. And, and you read in the Psalms, David had a Lord. He, he loved the Lord. He, he was a king under the king. And who is David's king? King Jesus, who is God. So Jesus poses this question. Jesus doesn't say, look Pharisees, I'm God. But notice how Jesus does it. He says, how do you think David has a son who's his Lord? It's a really remarkable way to identify his deity. Turn to John 10. Here's another striking one. And this is one that I've had the the, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons use at the door a number of times. They'll say, turn to John 10. I think, "Oh, oh, goody. Okay. So Jesus says, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. By the way, Who can give people eternal life? That's a claim to deity, right? He says, verse 30, I and the Father are one, another claim to deity. Verse 31, the Jews knew what he was saying. They picked up stones to stone him, right? They want to throw rocks at him until he's unconscious. They they have murder on the heart here because Jesus has claimed Deity. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered, for a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy. See, they got it. They knew what Jesus was claiming. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them and said, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are God's. And if he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am God? Now this text is interesting. I don't know if you've ever been troubled by this. Wait, is Jesus' defense? Hey, uh, I give them eternal life, I and the Father are one. Hey, we want to throw rocks at you because you're claiming to be God. Uh, No, 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 the Bible says you're all gods. Is Jesus trying to get out of a stoning by claiming some sort of God status for everybody universally. Look, we're all on the same plane. I'm a God, you're a God, we're all gods together. It sounds like, uh, you know, uh, new age, 20th century pop music. Um, that's not what Jesus is doing here. He, he is quoting Psalm 82. And I want you to turn there. The Pharisees would have known exactly what he was saying. They would have been familiar with the psalm He's quoting. And this psalm is actually an indictment against them and an affirmation of his deity. Jesus is not saying, don't throw rocks at me when I claim to be God because we're all gods together. That's not what he's saying. Let's read Psalm 82, verse 1. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know. They do not understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods. And all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations." This psalm is an indictment against Israel's corrupt leadership. What are they doing? They're oppressing the weak. They're causing the people of Israel to walk about in darkness because they're teaching falsely. They're stealing from them. They're not feeding the sheep. They're fleecing the sheep. They're feasting on the sheep. They are corrupt leaders and they're acting wickedly and unjustly. And they're walking around thinking they are gods on the earth. And God sarcastically says to them, okay, you're gods, we'll go with that, but guess what? You'll die like men. God is sarcastically saying, you're gods, and then he turns around and says, no, you're not, you're mortal, and you're under the indictment of my judgment for your corrupt and wicked activities that oppress my people. And the appeal of the psalmist in verse 1 is what? God takes his stand Amidst his own congregation. What is Jesus doing in John 10? He is taking his stand in the midst of the corrupt leaders in the congregation of Israel. John 10 is a fulfillment of Psalm 82. Where Jesus actually stands up as God in their midst. indicts them for their corruption. And condemns them. And listen, the one who does that in Psalm 82 is God. You guys say you're gods? You act like you're gods? You're oppressing my people? Uh, Jesus quotes this verse on purpose because verse 8, Arise, O God, judge all the earth, for it's you who possess all the nations, is an affirmation of the one true God over and against all pretenders. And the Pharisees were pretenders, acting like God's oppressing the people. Jesus' quotation of this psalm is an indictment of the Pharisees and an affirmation of his deity not a denial of it. I think the way Jesus claimed to be God, and you can look at the other passages, none of them are direct. None of them are a banner that says, hey, I'm God, come worship me. Um, But the way he does it, I think, is important because Jesus came incognito, right? The, the, The ones he came to, his own, did not recognize him. That was intentional. He would make himself known to those who received him by faith, and the minds and the eyes of those who had rejected him would be blinded by judicial hardening here's another evidence of the deity of christ it is old testament references to yahweh ascribed in the new testament and i'll just refer to these joel 232 says he who believes in the name of the, who calls on the name of the lord shall be saved it's yahweh in joel 232 when it gets quoted in romans 10 it's christ it's jesus And this happens over and over and over again. Old Testament quotes referring to Yahweh, quoted of Jesus in the New Testament. Is Jesus Yahweh? Yes. Fully, the fullness of deity dwells in him. And then Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah 12.10 is interesting. Because there God is prophesying about the day when Israel repents. He will pour out the spirit of supplication and of grace. And they will look on me whom they've pierced, says Yahweh. And mourn for him as for an only son. Again, it's weird grammar. The pronouns are all mixed up. It's really good theology. Because when they look on me, Yahweh, whom they've pierced. He's talking about Christ. Who is Yahweh in the flesh. And they will mourn for him as for an only son. He is God the son, Yahweh in the flesh, who is crucified. That one day Israel will look back on in repentance. Mourning in sorrow with the spirit of grace and supplication. In their national repentance. By the way, that gets quoted in Revelation 1-7. Uh, in case we don't pick up on the clues in Zechariah 12:10, clearly ascribed to Jesus in Revelation 1-7. And there are many examples like that. Uh, another category for thinking through the deity of Christ are titles of God ascribed to Jesus: Savior, Alpha Omega, first and last, beginning and the end. Those are all used of Yahweh in the Old Testament, used of Jesus in the New. And then the title Lord. Lord Adonai and Yahweh in the Old Testament. Adonai means Lord or Master. Yahweh meaning the covenant-keeping, self-existent God of Israel. Both of those titles, uh, all caps Lord and lowercase Lord, are translated in the Old Testament Greek version with the Greek word kurios. Um, which is used overwhelmingly of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Kurios means Lord. When you see the Lord in the New Testament, that is the word kurios. And it is the translation both of Edoni and of Yahweh from the Old Testament. And the New Testament uses it indiscriminately. He's the Lord. Of passages that uh, use Yahweh or Edoni in the Old Testament, Jesus is the Lord. And that title becomes, on every page of your New Testament, a testimony of the deity of Christ especially when it's attached to the definite article. There are times when the Greek word kurios is used just for an earthly master, but it's clear in the context. And when you see the Lord, overwhelmingly, it's a reference to the second person of the Trinity and an affirmation of his deity. Another category here are the works of God ascribed to Jesus. The work of creation ascribed to God and ascribed to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Right? He is uh, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. By the word of Jesus' power, he sustains all things. Uh, nothing has been created uh, which has been created except which Jesus himself created, John 1. He is the one who forgives sin. Remember when Jesus is healing the paralytic and he says, So that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I tell you, take up your pallet and walk. Right? That miracle was a sign to Jesus' authority to forgive sins. And, and the skeptics said, well, no one can forgive sins but God. Therefore, his sins aren't forgiven. Which is an accurate logical deduction. They're right. Only God can forgive sins. And, and, and if some man is claiming to forgive sins, then he's a blasphemer and a liar. They were right. The only piece of the logic they were missing is that God himself was standing in front of them. <laughs> Forgiving sins and demonstrating his authority to do so by healing, raising the dead, creating things out of nothing. Jesus is also credited with revelation, illumination, sending the Spirit, and judging the world. All activities that are said to be the activities of God. There are also attributes of God, page three, ascribed to Jesus. Omniscience, that means God knows everything, right? Jesus knows everything. I'm not sure I wanted to be thinking in front of Jesus, right? Every time you turn around, he's reading the heart, the thoughts of the heart of man and outing them in front of everybody else. Uh, Jesus knew everything. Omnipotence, uh, all-powerful. God is all-powerful. Only God is all-powerful over all things. And Jesus displays that power over demons, power over creation, power over death, power over life and death, and omnipresence. Only God is everywhere all the time. Satan's not omnipresent. Angels aren't omnipresent. Human beings will always only ever be singularly present, both in place and in time, right? God can be everywhere. you and I won't be. We will always be regulated by successive moments. We will always be regulated by location. You can always put a GPS locator on a human. But God is everywhere. Jesus is also everywhere. We have a couple indications of that in the New Testament. After Bethlehem, Right? In the church discipline process, Matthew 18, Jesus said where two or three of you are gathered in this process, I'm with you. Even if they're happening simultaneously in Singapore and South America, <laughs> Jesus is with you. And at the Great Commission, Jesus said, I'm with you even to the end of the age as you take the gospel to the nations. Every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. Uh, Jesus is omnipresent. And Jesus, by the way, is specially located in his resurrection body in one place. Jesus is specially located in his resurrection body in one place. And where is that place right now? At the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. At one point, it was in the upper room where he walked through locked doors to meet with the disciples. At another time, it was on a beach with Peter and he was eating fish in his resurrection body but now Jesus is at the right hand of the father making intercession for the saints but spiritually in his omnipresence Jesus is everywhere right the, the incarnation starts at bethlehem but the incarnation lasts forever he will forever be the god man there are things that belong only to god that are also said to belong to Jesus. The throne of God, priests, glory, authority, judgment, honor, righteousness, all things are said to belong to Christ. First place is said to belong to Christ, Colossians 1.18. By the way, that's blasphemous and idolatrous if Jesus is not God. And then the fullness of deity. God, God was pleased for the fullness of deity to dwell in him in bodily form. Colossians 1.18. Jesus' handling of the law... Of God and of the traditions of men is an indication that he is God. By the way, who could come and revoke, amplify, add to Mosaic law? Law that God gave through Moses. Only God has the right to change the way his regulating of his people is administrated in various times in human history. Right? There were times where people were supposed to eat bacon, then not supposed to eat bacon, then supposed to eat bacon again. Only God's allowed to do that. Right? How dare any man tamper with these things? But clearly, Jesus in his earthly ministry is making that transition. And then, of course, Jesus' unique relationship with the Father. I've come from the Father. I and the Father are one. I'm always about my Father's business, all those statements in John. And then the classic I am statements. I am the shepherd I am the door, I am the way, the truth, the life. And then John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. Those I am statements in Greek, ego, a me, are a direct quote and reflection of God's self-disclosed name, the I am, the Yahweh. Uh, He is the self-existent one, the one that was never created but just simply is. When Jesus says, I is, I am, I be, I exist. He's affirming his deity and his self-existence. And he uses that statement strategically over and over again in the Gospel of John. Of course, the title Son of God is a reference to deity. Uh, When he claimed that for himself, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Um, Some people would say, yeah, but we're all sons of God. We're all sons and daughters of God. Um, uh, By creatorship, yes, there is a universal fatherhood of God. But all of us naturally were born in the wrong family. None of us could claim God is my father except by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who gives us that filial relationship to God. Jesus says, if you do not belong to him, you're children of whom? Satan. We were all born in the wrong family until we were saved. And so not all of humanity can claim God as father, but no human can claim I am the son of God. Do you understand that title, the Son of God, is a unique title to deity used of Christ, the Son in Trinitarian relationship? Also, the title Son of Man is an affirmation of his deity. How so? Doesn't that mean Son of Man? Think about this. What human is not a, is not a Son of humanity? Jesus used the title Son of Man most frequently for himself in other words when jesus the god man is walking the earth what is he affirming over and over and over again i'm human i'm human guys i'm human (laughs) well only god in the flesh has to walk around saying i'm human i'm human i'm human i'm human right we don't walk around saying that well we do if we want to excuse our sin i'm only human but this actually is an indirect way of jesus affirming his deity To take this title, The Son of Man, it's also a reference to Daniel, um, where one like a son of man appeared before Yahweh, and this one who's like a son of man appearing before the throne of God is himself deity. So that title is a two-pronged affirmation of Jesus' deity. And then you have demonic testimony. Luke 8.28 is an example. They know who he is. He's the Son of God. They're ascribing deity to Jesus. Another affirmation of Jesus' deity are pre-incarnate appearances. We won't go through those just give you one by way of example. John 12 tells us that what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 when he said, Behold, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his throne filled the temple. Uh, John 12, 41 says that, John, that Isaiah saw Jesus. That is, before Bethlehem, the pre-incarnate second person to the Trinity manifest in visible or tangible form. Uh, I would suggest that all theophanies, that is, appearances of God, Manifest, tangible, visible, physical. That all theophanies are in fact Christophanies. Those are appearances of the second person of the Trinity pre-Bethlehem. One of those examples is in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. When you see that title, the angel of Yahweh. Um, That's different than an angel of the Lord or angels of the Lord. But the angel of the Lord. Um, I give you the, the references there in your notes. You can trace that out. When people met the angel of the Lord, they walked away saying... We just saw God and we're still alive. They worshipped. The angel of the Lord is a scribed deity. I believe the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Christ. One significant evidence for that is the angel of the Lord never shows up after Bethlehem. The other other evidence for that is what you see on the last page, page 5, which is the role of the second person of the Trinity. What is the role of the second person? Uh, His role is as sonship, as creator, but he is also called the Word of God. That is, he is the expression of God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, he is the communicator of God. Now, turn to Colossians 1. Just as a, a final thought. Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image, the icon... Of the invisible God. God's invisible. But Jesus is the visible representation. He's the image of the invisible God. He's also the firstborn over all creation. And the JWs at your door say, see, he was born, he was firstborn. Uh, He was the first created being. That's not what prototokos, the word for firstborn here means. It means preeminent one, the first in a household. Like the, the firstborn in a household has the preeminent role. Tell my sister. I'm just kidding. Um, The firstborn in the household in in the ancient Near East had a preeminent role. Um, The title Prototikos was designed... I see brothers and sisters looking at each other here. The title Prototikos was intended to indicate Jesus' preeminence. Um, Not that he came into existence. He is the image of the invisible God. By him all things were created. Um, it was God's design, verse eighteen, that He would have first place in everything. It was the Father's good pleasure for the fullness to dwell in Him. Uh, and then Hebrews chapter one, verses two and three. In these last days, God has spoken to us literally in Son. What language did He speak in? The the communication of His very Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made all things, that son is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When God wants to communicate himself manifestly, visibly, tangibly, in expression, it is through the son that he does so. That is the son's role. Um, So that's why I believe the, the theophanies of the Old Testament are in fact Christophanies, But again, it indicates that Jesus Christ is none other than God in the flesh. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have no other hope but that you be God and you become sin on our behalf. Uh, This is the good news of the gospel, that the only one of infinite nature who could take away our sins was the very one who was offended by them but absorbed the wrath against them in total that we might be free and have life. We praise you for these things. Uh, We ask that the songs that are sung all around us would be meant. And we look forward to the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you indeed are Lord to the glory of the Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.